0: Climate can feel dark and difficult to deal with, both intellectually and emotionally. And I do think there are good things happening. Progress is being made. So we're going to talk about what's going right. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Arianna Brocious. And this is Climate One. On today's show, we're featuring an
1: interview with Rebecca Solnit, a writer, historian, and activist who's been examining the concept of hope and the unpredictability of change in her work for more than 20
0: years. She's a real voice of hope when it comes to the climate crisis. Right, and she's not Pollyannish. I cycle through ups and downs, and she really lifted me up. For example, she talked about proposed bills such as the Green New Deal and the Standing Rock protests, seen as failures, but they had unanticipated positive consequences. And then there are laws that are enacted that have indirect or knock on consequences that don't get counted in direct impacts. I'm comforted by her wide-ranging and long-term thinking. I guess you could say, Ariana, I like her math. Yeah, me too. I
1: came away from my conversation with her feeling a, a bit more upbeat about where we're at in this moment in the climate crisis and what the future holds and how much power we have to change it. In addition to climate optimism, she is a vibrant voice on women's rights. Her 2014 essay, Men Explain Things to Me, has been credited with coining the term mansplaining, which is a a cultural phenomenon that I think many of us are familiar with. And mansplaining in particular can be kind of an easy cultural touch point. But the truth is that her work is resonant on all sorts of subjects.
0: I've heard of mansplaining and I've practiced it according to my (laughs) college-age daughter. In 2023, Rebecca co-edited an anthology called It's Not Too Late, which is a guidebook for changing the climate narrative from despair to possibility. Thank you. We need that.
1: I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Rebecca recently at the Commonwealth Club of California, and we had a nice, wide-ranging discussion. And we started with talking about her ability to take the long view of things.
2: Yeah, I think if I have a superpower, it's slowness, which means that I see long stretches of time, which lets you see change. And One thing I run into a lot with climate is people often conflate impossible with unimaginable. Nobody in 1973 could have imagined 2023, but everything good in 2023 is because somebody in 1973 or some past uh, moment fought for it. And I like 1973 because you can see The most mainstream narrative is that the civil rights movement, which means the black civil rights movement, was really in decline at that point, arguably. Um, You could debate that. After Alcatraz and the formation of AIM, et cetera, the Native rights movements were really surging. The women's movement was surging. Gay rights were really beginning to gather force. The disability rights movement was happening, and the environmental movement which was something really different than the earlier conservation movement, was also really beginning to do stuff. And even the language for thinking about all these things had to be invented. And I know feminism best in some ways. Words like domestic violence and marital rape weren't concepts or terms people had. So you can see they made mistakes. They stumbled. They didn't quite know what they wanted and what they were doing. But so much good stuff comes of it. So I feel for 2073... It behooves us all to do everything we can towards that better future for human rights, for biodiversity, for 30 by 30 and beyond, and for the climate, knowing that most of us uh, won't—there are probably some young people, maybe. (laughs) um, Most of us won't be here in 2073. I don't plan to be, (laughs) and um, I think I'd be 112. And, um, you know, they'll never say never, you can't see the future, but you can learn the shape of change from the past. And to see it also means seeing indirect consequences and other impacts. A lot of despair, etc., comes often from people thinking that if, if we make demands of a government on Tuesday and they don't fall to their knees and say they were wrong and we were, were right and give us everything we asked for by Thursday, then we failed. And that's just not how change works, although it's how defeat works. Right I think about um, so the Green New
1: Deal, this idea that was you know yeah. really popularized um, and seen as very kind of far out, you know, uh, extreme yeah. in some in some sense um, and then became adopted by leading presidential candidates, you know, and kind of like mm-hmm. form put it part of their platforms. We still don't have the Green New Deal, but that has been kind of modified and come into uh, build back better that Biden was trying to get. And then that also failed. Um, but we got the Inflation Reduction Act. So, you know, we're, we're making progress, right?
2: Yeah. And to assume that if the Green New Deal didn't pass, it failed, which is, again, that kind of short-sightedness that I, I keep trying to counter is to fail to see it completely changed the conversation. Part of the genius, even of the name, the Green New Deal, is to say taking care of the natural world is a brilliant jobs program. You can see there are Green New Deals that have been adopted in cities and regions in the United States and elsewhere. And again, even with IRA, you have to measure the indirect consequences, like a huge part of Europe and some other countries were like, what, they're going to pump all this money? We need to pump a bunch of money. And so it's having these kind of like knock-on consequences in the same way that Standing Rock didn't stop a pipeline. But had a number of remarkable other consequences, including inspiring AOC, who was just a, a bartender and waitress nobody had ever heard of to run for office. And um, and one of the great upset victories of recent history, uh, defeat the third most powerful man in the Democratic House to become the youngest woman in Congress ever, and do a a lot of amazing stuff and be maybe one of the great voices of our time. Yeah, I think so. So Standing Rock inspired her to do that. Yeah.
1: So a lot has changed since you entered the climate movement or the environmental movement. Um, How do you evaluate the progress that's been made when we look back, and we've talked about some of these, you know, the recent bills, but when you look back on maybe the last 20, 15, or even five years, what we've done, and also considering that, as there's been progress, there's been continued um, acceleration of climate impacts. You know, last year was the hottest, this is the hottest year yeah. on record and that keeps happening. And
2: Thank you for asking me a, a slowness question, <laughs> a long-term change. I think if you told people where we were with renewables and how powerful and engaged the climate movement is um, and how much the public is engaged compared to where we were 10 years ago, I don't know how much people would believe it. And I think some of the problems we still have are that people's, a lot of people get this vague understanding and don't get updates. The idea that that we don't have the solutions, that nobody cares, that the media is not covering it are all things that were reasonably true to, say, 15 or 20 years ago. They're completely inaccurate now. And it's also really interesting because there was this period, I think of it as the the Al Gore Inconvenient Truth Compact Fluorescent Prius era, (laughs) um, when... I didn't fully realize myself until I read a, this wonderful book that's a short history of the human use of coal from the very beginning through the Industrial Revolution to the present. The book came out at the end of the 90s, and it said burning fossil fuel is bad, but we don't really have an alternative. And I, was, I read this about eight or ten years ago, and it made me think— oh, my God, renewables were not what they are now. We've had an energy revolution. And this energy revolution is too slow for most people to have noticed. Renewables were expensive. They were primitive. They were utterly inadequate to the job, even a little over 10 years ago, let alone at the at the millennium. So we've had an energy revolution that's incredibly exciting, but only if you can see the arc of change, which is slow and incremental and very wonky. So... Everything is different. The early climate movement was polite. It was sort of requesting and kind of trusting governments and corporations to do good things. The idea that we had to fight them, blockade them, call them out, you know, etc. I watched the founding of 350.org and watched it go from a kind of nice, polite organization to a much more radical one.
1: So now people are throwing soup and paint on on
2: famous artwork. And it's funny when people get all all outraged about that I'm like, I saw the impact of the BP blowout in the Gulf of Mexico like you think a little tomato on a a sheet of glass is bad? Let me tell you about lighting the ocean on fire and uh, respiratory diseases, the ruination of Vietnamese refugees, livelihoods in the fishing industry thousands of pelicans coated in oil and all the kids without here in by the Chevron refinery, all the forms. The fact that fossil fuel every step of the way is poison and it's political poison as well feels like something we're just beginning to recognize because we grew up in the sort of the age of fossil fuel or is regnant and triumphant and it's been completely normalized and part of our job is to denormalize it.
0: Ariana, I really appreciate her response to your slowness question. There's so much emphasis in the climate conversation on speed and scale, speed and scale. We got to go faster, faster, faster. I think sometimes we overdo it. And... There's a saying I forgot where I heard it once is like, things are urgent, we better slow down. I just spent a week at a Buddhist monastery with a bunch of climate people where we walked and talked and chewed very slowly. It was very powerful. And these are people who know we need to do a lot fast. So sometimes slowness can be really powerful and in some ways we don't really see in our hyper fast culture.
1: Right. And the other thing Rebecca says in relation to that is that there's these seeds planted all the time that don't fruit until much later. So you may not think that what we're doing now is that impactful or that the conversation that you had with someone about climate didn't change their mind in that moment. But bit by bit, as we continue to put our energy into this, we do make change and those things unfold and develop over time.
0: Right. We're so conditioned to see like direct, immediate cause and consequence. A lot of systems don't work that way.
1: And we also have to hold the truth that we do need to act fast, that there is a sort of a critical decade ahead of us where a lot of things have to happen and slowing down now will harm us in the future. So we have to sort of be embracing both of those ideas of the need for urgency and also the deliberation and the benefits of a slow thinking approach.
0: Right, when do we go fast and when do we go slow? A lot to think about there. We'll get back to your conversation with Rebecca in a minute. If you missed a previous episode or want to hear more of Climate One's empowering conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And these conversations are really critical. Help us get
1: more people talking about climate. You can do this by giving us a rating or a review or recommending our show
0: to a friend. Coming up, privilege can make people complacent about climate action. That's not going to affect me. Or nihilistic. It's not going to make a difference. But that forgets that there are people suffering now
2: despair is a luxury because for most of us giving up, at some level, we secretly know that we can give up and our lives will still be relatively comfortable and safe.
0: That's up next. Let's get back to Ariana's conversation with author and activist Rebecca Solnit.
2: There's a really powerful, pervasive idea in the progressive world that our job is to convert our enemies, that we're little evangelists out there to out-debate people who don't agree with us. I wrote an essay for Harper's when I was writing a column there before it became so conservative again. In praise of preaching to the choir, we have enough people who believe that climate change is real and urgent, that if all of them mobilized, if all of them were fully engaged, we could do everything we need to do. We don't need to convert our enemies. We need to mobilize our friends. And, um, you know, in preaching to the choir is this dismissive phrase I heard all my life. And it's like, the choir comes to church to sing, to hear some preaching, to gossip on the church steps or the synagogue or mosque steps or whatever. And, um, you know, and it's also such a transactional notion of what what speech is for. I do run into people sometimes usually male, sorry, who <laughs> think that words are for either bullying somebody into agreeing with them or doing an information dump. But <laughs> words are for, there's words of love, words of joy, words of humor, um, words of poetry, language is how we connect. And it's often, I want what kept me alive as a young woman was really long conversations back in those days of like the phone just rang and you picked it up and it was one of your best friends. <laughs> and then you talked for two hours and we reaffirmed that he, that we had value, that we had rights, that each other's experiences were real. You know, as we we're being gaslit that, you know, sexual harassment didn't happen in the world, you know, sexism didn't exist and also shut up and et cetera. So. We do a lot with language to reinforce each other, to support each other, to encourage each other. And some of the climate conversation is definitely about info dumping. Some of it will be about debating, but a lot of it will be about encouraging. A word a writer friend of mine reminded me a while back means to instill courage.
1: Good climate news, good environmental news can be slow moving, Mm -hmm. can be highly technical, um, and as a result, it doesn't necessarily get the same play or coverage or even public understanding as something like a hurricane or a f- wildfire or things that are much more um, fast, um, gripping, you know, kind of destructive bad news. Mm-hmm. So I think it can be easy for people to read the news and think that we're in a pretty dire situation. How do you think about climate defeatists versus climate denialists or deniers?
2: I feel like there's concentric circles of climate understanding, and then I feel like I'm making a model of Dante's hell, but we'll set that aside. I think his ring sort of descended. Mine might ascend. maybe this is purgatory, but, um, but I feel like the denialists um, are just refusing the information, and I think a lot of it is what the natural world is constantly telling us is everything is connected to everything else and we all have responsibility towards the whole, which is a very anti rugged individualist, anti free marketeer. Um, libertarian thing. So it's ideologically offensive to conservatives. But they're so far over there. They kind of don't matter. And um, But climate defeatists who abound, they don't deny that climate is real. They often deny that solutions are real, that the movement is real, that coverage is real, that people caring is real. So they have their own amount of denial. There's a kind of depression where you just want to sit in the corner or curl up in fetal position or whatever. But these sort of evangelists of giving up, like the energized ones, I don't fully understand it. But I find that a lot of times that, well, very often that they're facts are wrong, and that their frameworks about how change works and the nature of power is often wrong, too. And then within that, I think there's a lot of people who care, who would like to hope, but who haven't been offered hope. And then what's really interesting, when you get to the organizers, the scientists, the journalists, the people who are really involved, they're scared, but they're not despondent. They know that this is the decisive decade, that it—that we— The future is what we will make it in the present. There are parameters, of course. We can't make it like we never burned those trillions of tons of fossil fuel and put all that carbon dioxide in the upper atmosphere. But we have tremendous choices in this moment. And the difference between the best case scenario and the worst case scenario is profound. I wrote an essay last year called Despair is a Luxury, because for most of us giving up, at some level, we secretly know that we can give up and our lives will still be relatively comfortable and safe. And it's easier to give up. Yeah. And you—and so what you're really doing is you're giving up on behalf of people. You're saying, let those kids starve. Let that ice melt. Let those storms destroy the crops of those people in Central America We who are relatively comfortable, safe, affluent, and therefore powerful, I think have no moral right to give up. And we're giving up, you know, to let other people die first, other people lose first, other species lose first. I don't think it's ethical, and I think the facts say there's a lot worth fighting for now, and fighting for it is the really good way to live.
1: So you were describing this idea that giving up for people in the global north, as we just say, you know, those of us who live in the wealthier, more privileged parts of the world and who have also contributed the majority of the emissions that are now contributing to the climate crisis, that giving up by us is essentially consigning other people to death and suffering now and in the future. So that strikes me as... Um, lacking empathy, lacking understanding. So how do we build more empathy, more understanding among you know, those in the global north?
2: One thing that I found fascinating when I finally understood what most human rights and environmental movements do, first of all, is try and make the invisible visible. When I started volunteering with Rainforest Action Network in 1988, people didn't know anything about the Amazon and the role of rainforests in global health, etc. I remember actually standing on a corner um, very near here. as this 20-something-year-old who was very shy and... And uh, being told by some man that, no, the Amazon was not the lungs of the earth. <laughs> and, uh, and some guy in a business suit, but whatever. So, yeah. But, you know, and so bringing those stories, connecting people. And then also one of the narratives we really need to dismantle because we have a lot of bad stories about climate, too, that. Fossil fuel industry was very excited about the idea of climate footprints, because if we could all worry about our personal virtue, we wouldn't worry about them. And it is our job to worry about them, fight them and ultimately dismantle them. I'd also suggest that everybody is responsible, but the richest 1% of human beings on earth have twice the impact of the poorest 50% of people on earth. You know, peasants in Bangladesh are not really causing a lot of climate warming. People with private jets are. So it's also understanding that, you know, we have varying impacts depending, you know, on personal choices and that it's not just a personal responsibility thing. I have 100% clean energy at home, which if you're in San Francisco, you can sign up for with Clean Energy SF because somebody else fought to make that an option. I rode my bike today in bike lanes because the San Francisco Bike Coalition fought for bike lanes. Pretty soon, thanks to the movement to stop allowing gas hookups in new construction, you won't have to opt out of having methane pumped into your house. When you phrase it that way, it sounds pretty lurid, doesn't it? <laughs> you know that houses will be all electric. Mm-hmm. And um, so we make these changes together and we make people visible and we make the benefits of what we're doing visible together. And so much climate work is just making visible what's happening with oceans, what's happening with the global South, what's happening with rainforests, what's happening with impacted communities, but also making visible the movement, the solutions and the victories. And I think the left historically is really bad at celebrating victories. And the climate movement has a A lot more we need to do, but we've accomplished a lot. So how do we celebrate victories more? Because I think this comes back to the idea that
1: environmental stories, you know, one editor told me once, they ooze, right? They just kind of like incremental things. They go bad slowly. They get better slowly. There's not as much drama. But there have been a lot of environmental or climate victories that are preventing harm. Yes. Rather than achieving a new solar plant or something. So how do we celebrate those?
2: A lot of victories look like nothing. The forest wasn't cut down. The toxic incinerator wasn't built in the inner city neighborhood, so the kids didn't get asthma. Uh, um the coal plants, the liquid natural gas export facility wasn't built, etc. So a lot of times if you're looking for victory, it literally looks like nothing. It's the thing that didn't happen. But a lot has happened and is happening. Bill McKibben pointed out the other day, we're implementing solar energy so fast. It's the equivalent of a, a large nuclear power plant opening every day. One of the great victories that climate people often hark back to is the Montreal uh, Treaty to stop the ozone depleting gases, which was actually really successful. And then just in the last few years, there was a, a major milestone in the recovery of the ozone layer because we had this treaty. And treaties sometimes work. A lot of it is on the media, which is part of my job and yours. But all of us are storytellers. One of the things that happens that A lot of climate events is people ask, what can I do? A lot of what you can do is be informed on climate, including the victories and the possibilities, and bring them up in conversation and be equipped to counter defeatism, despair when it's due to bad facts and bad frameworks. Because it's also bad frameworks about how change happens or where power lies, because power also lies in the grassroots. It lies in good ideas. It lies... In civil society, it doesn't just lie in elites, which is the story we're often told to make us give up.
0: Arianna, I really appreciate what Rebecca says about defeatism and that it takes a certain amount of privilege to give up and that people with privilege, like you and me, have no moral right to give up on the climate challenge.
1: She's really illuminating something that's critical here, which is that it's a privilege to just be able to ignore an issue that doesn't affect you directly because you're not experiencing it on a daily basis. And I think about the Black Lives Matters protests in 2020 and how this really was an example of showcasing that, where if you weren't out in the streets, if you weren't watching the news, feeling acutely impacted by what was happening, you could just turn your TV off and sort of give yourself a break, as opposed to people who are experiencing racism and violence and aggression every day in their lives. They cannot just turn it off. If you live near a refinery or an oil well, it's impacting your daily life, and it's a lot harder to ignore those things.
0: Right, and capitalism kind of depends on those sacrifice zones or concentration harms in certain areas while the benefits go to other places. So on a previous Climate One episode, I talked with Leah Thomas, the founder of Intersectional Environmentalist. She really opened my eyes to how important it is to address multiple systemic problems at once. They have common roots. And this really connects back to what Rebecca Solnit was saying about how easy it is for relatively privileged people to give up. Here's Leah Thomas.
3: What I hear for from a lot of white kind of well-to-do environmentalists is this sentiment of, it's too complicated. I just want to focus on, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. But they don't realize the privilege that's kind of wrapped into that because they're saying, I want my future for my grandkids to be fine, but my present is okay. And to me, there are people without clean air and clean water, and that is not complicated. And we need solutions to address who is being impacted by that right now.
1: Wow, she really puts that so clearly and so powerfully.
0: She does. And for decades, the mainstream environmental movement has been mostly white and well-off, coastal, we know. And because of that limited perspective, solutions haven't always gone as far as they needed to
3: even though the Environmental Protection Agency was created, Earth Day was created, all of these environmental laws and regulations, to them they may have thought, hey, you know, things are getting better in the 70s and 80s. However, because the movement wasn't intersectional, didn't really include a lot of low-income and people of color, Then we just see toxic waste sites getting kind of diverted to these vulnerable communities and staying away from wealthier and white neighborhoods. So the problem didn't disappear. It just disappeared for them.
0: And the same way that race and class play a critical role in climate, so does gender. And because society is unequal
1: in lots of ways, women are more vulnerable to the effects of a heated planet.
0: Indeed, they're the ones often walking distances daily to fetch water, caring for the young and elderly. One UN report says as climate change drives conflict and declining agricultural production around the world, women and girls face increased vulnerabilities to all forms of gender-based violence, including human trafficking and child marriage.
1: Uh, That's so heartbreaking. And, you know, gender also impacts how people feel able or not to participate in climate and other social movements. Because if you've been systemically ignored or pushed aside or silenced, whether through workplace culture, harassment, or outright violence, you aren't gonna feel safe putting yourself on the line
0: for something. That's a really good point. I'd never thought about that.
1: Well, I think it's true of all of us that it's hard to experience something that isn't our lived reality. But what's really important to remember is that all of these issues are intertwined And there's no solving the climate crisis without addressing race and class and gender and these other identity issues. Let's get back to my conversation with Rebecca Solnit.
2: The goal really is, and this is a goal of anti-racism, a lot of other human rights struggles. The goal is a democracy of voices. It's not to shut down the voices that have historically been heard, but to make them one of many voices, to let the voices that haven't been heard happen. I worry a little bit because you sometimes get a dismissiveness as though feminism is either Solved. has achieved its <laughs> goals and should shut up and go home. I don't like the idea of generational waves. It does feel seismic. There are these seismic ruptures. We had one in the late 60s. We had another one in the 80s. Um, we had one, I think, Me Too is the consequence of the rupture that really came in 2012. It was kind of bearing the fruit of the changing conversation of surfacing the violence, the abuse, the silencing, so that when those actresses came forward... The ground had been laid for people to hear, believe, and understand in a way they hadn't. It's another model of change working slowly and incrementally. Feminism is a human rights movement. It's a democracy movement. And the, the short example I can give is how did Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein have, like, half-century-long crime sprees of doing horrific things to women. It was about an autocracy of voices. They were confident that they had more power, more credibility, more control than their victims. I think rape and sexual assault are both enforcements and enactments of that inequality. I can do anything I want to. You You have no, no rights and no voice, not even the voice to say no, not the voice to testify afterwards. And they literally got away with it in both cases for half a century. And then we got into an era with more democracy of voices. So you can't disconnect the violence against the physical violence from the the social violence, the conceptual violence. I met a woman from Texas whose mother was one of the first women to sit on juries in Texas. Texas didn't let women sit on juries till the 50s, which meant if you were a victim, a woman victim, you had to get... Men to believe you, yeah. Which, um, the whole and we had an entire culture, it wasn't just individual juries or whatever. We had an entire culture that, in every way, including blaming Eve, etc., portrayed women as subjective, delusional, unreliable, vindictive little hussies, etc., and men as somehow having a monopoly on objective truth. And mm-hmm. that's impacted climate scientists, that's impacted women politicians, that's impacted women in all kinds of professional spheres. And it's also impacted women saying, he's trying to kill me who aren't believed until they turn up dead. You know, I did not coin the term mansplaining, although I'm often credited with it. So far as I can tell, the essay published in 2008, the title essay that meant, men explained things to me, inspired it. And I have an entire file at home I call the mansplaining Olympic tryouts, um, <laughs> with more than 100 spectacular examples. And the original essay I wrote is about... A nuclear physicist in Livermore telling me, laughing, that one of his neighbors recently ran out of the house naked, screaming her husband was trying to kill her. And I looked at him. I said, how do you know he wasn't trying to kill her? And it was terrifying to realize his beliefs were so fixed. The one thing that couldn't occur to him with a naked woman in the middle of the night saying, he's trying to kill me, is that that he might be trying to kill her.
1: And she might be telling the truth. And, yeah. yeah.
2: And so the having language, not just in having words, but living in a society that 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 will listen to them having credibility, consequence, you know, audibility are survival tools that women didn't have. And, you know, I care about climate. I'm totally committed to it. I've kind of retooled my life to, for that to be mostly what I do. But I can't not care about feminism, and they're not all that separate. Yeah, And, and, and feminism yeah. is also like my own life story, including family histories of domestic violence, intense street harassment here in San Francisco. And although harassment doesn't convey the menace and threat and sometimes assault I faced, feminism is my life. Climate
0: is my planet. You're listening to a conversation with Rebecca Solnit about the need for optimism as we move away from fossil fuels. This is Climate One. Coming up, why connecting with other people is so important.
2: We have to escape from consumerism. We have to escape from the kind of loneliness and isolation that Silicon Valley and a lot of other structures in our society
0: have helped create. That's up next.
1: Let's get back to my conversation with activist and author Rebecca Solnit, talking about the connection between the climate crisis and the democracy crisis.
2: The American people are much more progressive than our elected officials and the legislation we get. There's a lot more support for climate action than we're getting from politicians. That's partly about dark money and how expensive it is to run political campaigns and the giant gobs thrown at Clarence Thomas. If we really had a one, you know, one person, one vote nation, if we had equal access to the ballot, if we didn't have the gerrymandering, the voter suppression, the taking the vote away from people convicted of felonies even after they served their time uh, in too many states, et cetera. Like, I remember there was that election when Jeff Sessions, the Confederate chipmunk, became... uh, Trump's attorney general, and then there was a special election, and you got like a right-wing child molester versus a really nice moderate white guy, and it was really exciting that the white guy ran. But were black people fully enfranchised in Alabama? Probably Alabama would have been sending really cool Democrats, probably quite possibly black women to the Senate all along. And then I think we can broaden the concept of democracy to say. How do people in the global north have the right to make decisions that affect people in the global south, sub, you know, the South Pacific, sub Saharan Africa, and rem- remote places like the circumpolar peoples of the Arctic? How do the rich have the right to impact the poor more? Who will feel the impact more? You could even expand it to a democracy. How do human beings have a right to pursue? Our goals, if they're going to make other life, you know, other species extinct, our whole habitats extinct. So I think it's, in a way, just like I said, feminism is a democracy project. I think climate is a democracy project. And then another constituency is the people who were born yesterday, the people who will be born in 50 years, the people who will be born in 500 years. We don't have the right to steal the future, but the we who are stealing the future is mostly the minority who are profiting from the status quo and trying to prevent the climate transition. Because again, true democracy would let that transition roll forward. We're seeing, you know, the
1: overturning of Roe v. Wade. There's been sort of an increase in censorship and Silencing of other kinds of subjects that are like not allowed to be discussed in schools and taught to children and things like that. Um, So it can feel like we're taking steps backwards. There's also been a real political sort of backlash to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and states that are trying to pass their own protections. So, how do you hold that, you know, kind of um, maybe not despair, but, you know, disappointment with these major steps back, which can feel like steps back, and then also this what's happened, what's the result has been?
2: The Supreme Court, who overturned Roe v.ersus Wade, do not re- represent the people of this country. They were shooed in by minority presidents. Two out of three of Trump's appointments, I think, were corrupt. And uh, the Supreme Court has become a criminal organization. Or, uh, certainly Clarence Thomas um, has. And it does not represent what the public wants bel- and believes is right. And we're seeing backlash, not only in states trying to pass their own, you know, and essentially killing Roe versus Wade, hands it back to the states. Some states are gleefully criminalizing, essentially being a pregnant woman, uh, and this very handmaiden's tale 1984 kind of way. A lot of other states are looking at passing reproductive rights protection. But also, I often hear the narrative like, oh, women's rights took a step backward. But I want to enlarge the picture to say that In the last few years, Argentina, Mexico, and Ireland, three very Catholic countries, all granted women reproductive rights. Mm -hmm. And so if you get, you know, the the U.S. is not the world. And I tend to think that ideas are the genie that's not going to get back into the bottle. Women in this country had 50 years of reproductive rights. We believe that we are entitled to them. Obviously, there's a right-wing backlash I think it's a backlash against all the progress that was made, racial progress, gender progress, progress for queer and trans people, progress for indigenous rights and progress for environmental protection. You know, you can suppress... The will of the people through brute force. And the Republicans are clearly committed to being a minority party. They've given up on actually winning majority rule, which is why they're trying so hard to corrupt elections, suppress votes and voters, particularly black voters. And it's not a good long term strategy for them. And I think that in the long, like, and I feel terrible for the women in Texas and other states who are being terrorized, tortured, forced to carry dead babies and fetuses that cannot possibly survive, et cetera. But um, I don't think it'll last.
1: Yeah. This is actually a great segue. Um, I'd like to ask you to read something. And this is an excerpt from an essay you wrote in uh, following the 2016 presidential election, called
2: How to Survive a Disaster. The ideal societies we hear of are mostly far away or long ago, or both. Situated in some primordial society before the fall, or a spiritual kingdom in a remote Himalayan fastness. The implication is that we here and now are far from capable of living such ideals. But what if paradise flashed up among us from time to time? At the worst of times, what if we glimpsed it in the jaws of hell? These flashes give us, as the long ago and far away do not, a glimpse of who else we ourselves may be and what else our society could become. The door to this era's potential paradises is in hell. I love
1: that last line and this idea of finding paradise, of finding solace and comfort and community and togetherness in the worst of times. And uh, you write in that essay, and I think in some other places, about responses to disasters like Hurricane Katrina. So how did you come to this idea that these times that can seem like the most dire can actually be um, really powerful and uplifting and, and community building?
2: San Francisco earthquakes taught me that. First, I lived through the 89 earthquake, as I'm sure a lot of you did, whose 34th anniversary was just a few days ago. And I was amazed to find that, like, all the things I'd been fretting about, simmering over, were just completely erased. Like, I was mad at somebody who was behaving badly. I never thought about him again. And and I just saw people... You know, people all over the city came out and directed traffic because there was a complete blackout. People just figured out what needed to be done and did it. In North Beach, for example, the power was out for three days, so restaurants, rather than let their food spoil, like set out barbecues and started feeding the neighbors. Um, People tried to rescue the victims of the freeway collapses and things like that. And actually, there was a group, a radical group called um, Seeds of Peace that had fed the great anti-nuclear peace marches, was set up community kitchens and fed the first responders who were working at the freeways. The fire department putting out the fires in the marina was only able to do that because um, huge numbers of volunteers showed up to help them run those hoses from the ocean to to get some water, et cetera. And then I was uh, commissioned to write an essay in advance of the centennial of the 1906 earthquake. And I found, again, all these remarkable stories of not what we'd always been told about disaster movies and a lot of conventional coverage of disaster, including the journalism of the 06 earthquake and uh, the incredibly criminally Racist journalism around Hurricane Katrina is an assumption that human nature is basically corrupt. Authority falls away in the chaos of a disaster. We we revert to our primordial nature, particularly poor poor people uh, and non-white people. And that nature for men is ravening wolves, plundering, looting, raping, marauding, etc. For women, um, especially if it's movies with Charlton Heston or Tom Cruise in in them, um, women become helpless idiots who need to be rescued by strong men. It's really, the stories they tell really reinforce the narrative that we need strong authority. But what you actually see in disaster that authority often ceases to exist or becomes obsessed with protecting its own power and private property, which is the least important thing compared to human life in a disaster, authority often fails hideously. The first responders in any disaster are your neighbors. And what happens is then by the time the news cameras get there, the professionals have often also gotten there. You'll get these exciting search and rescue teams, who are wonderful, but if you've been pulled out of the rubble that first day, it's probably the neighbors and um but people are resilient, um generous, empathic, creative, courageous, and that's sort of like, you know, rising to the occasion. That's kind of very wholesome. But what I found fascinating is that over and over in stories from 9-11, from Hurricane Katrina, when they weren't stories about the racist violence of the police and the white supremacists, and um, the blitz, uh, the bombing of London in the 1906 earthquake, there's a kind of luminous and joyfulness in people's accounts that told me, we're always told capitalism, consumerism, And in a sense, therapy culture tells us we want material comfort and safety and we want the pleasures of private life, love, sex, nice things. But I think what we want most deeply is meaning, purpose, belonging, agency, and we lack those. And what's astonishing is that that's not the story we hear about who we are and what we need. But people are so deeply fed when they find it in these moments, even when there's been a lot of death, even when their house has burned down, that they're often joyful and bold in a way you don't see otherwise. I wrote a book this relates to called A Paradise Built in Hell, Mm -hmm. Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disasters. The book came out in 2009. Um, I did the research, you know, 2007 and 2008, partly because after Hurricane Katrina, I thought we really needed the equipment to understand who we really are in disaster, who misbehaves, who behaves well, et cetera. Because that's like most of the people who died in that hurricane died in New Orleans and they died essentially because of racism and, um, the callousness of and stupidity of the authorities in charge from the Bush administration to the governor, to the mayor. Um, but, um, and I knew that climate change meant that we would have more disasters and more intense disasters, and we needed to understand who we were in the face of disaster. And I wish I was wrong about that. What I didn't understand is that in some ways disasters would become normalized, and the wildfires California had um, in 2017, 18, 19, 20 were big news stories. Canada just had the biggest news fires oh, yeah. in recorded history, and like— they barely got reported on. The New York Times and a lot of the mainstream media made me crazy because they kept reporting on the smoke. And it's like, hey, have you ever heard that where there's smoke, there's fire? (laughs) There was almost no coverage of where the smoke was coming from. Um, And of course, Canada, you know, Margaret Atwood once said, Canada is behind the world's longest one-way mirror. But And so what I worry about is that we normalize it, that like, you know, a thousand homes burning here, 500 people drowning there, crop destruction, famine here, that there's so much of it, it will become normalized, which is something I hadn't really anticipated. But this, uh, this idea that people really come together and find yeah. like, a truer
1: sense of being in these situations, I think, is one that is very hope-filling when you think about what future most likely, uh, you know, even if we do accomplish what we're hoping in terms of keeping climate impacts lesser, we're still going to have them. We're going to continue to have them, and we're yep. going to have to find that resilience.
2: What have you changed your mind about, and why? In order to do what the climate requires of us, there's a lot of very practical, wonky stuff you know and very physical stuff we need to electrify everything we need to change how this what the world runs on but i also think that we need to change our imaginations our values our relationships what's encouraging about how people respond to disasters you see this deeper sense of who we are and what we really want who we could be and i feel like we have to escape from consumerism we have to escape from the kind of loneliness and isolation that silicon valley and a lot of other structures in our society have helped create. We have to feel that we can have an age of abundance, but abundance will be in confidence in the future and the society we live in, confidence in our institutions and each other, a sense of belonging, um, a quality of life that will lie in our relationships to other human beings, other species, the natural world. And so I feel like that what disaster shows is that this is who we can be it kind of shows a way forward, but we need to change the stories we tell about what a good life, a good society, well-being look like as well. It happens all the time. I've changed my mind a lot because I've learned a lot of things. I was not that hopeful in the 90s. And a lot of things, that resurgence of indigenous voice agency, visibility, etc., changed my thinking really seeing it starting in 92, seeing the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Soviet bloc states. A number of other things made me believe that culture culture can change politics. Politics shapes the physical uh, you know, and administrative world we live in, that culture matters in a way I wasn't sure it did, even though I'd committed myself to it as a writer. And a lot of it is just learning. I'm writing recollections of my non-existence. I finally understood everything I'd written about feminism wasn't about violence, but it was also about voice. So a lot of it is just understanding better. And one of the joys of being a writer that I always hope is shared by the reader is understanding something better, seeing something more deeply, finding out something. In my book, Orwell's Roses, I found out nobody who wrote about Orwell was very interested in the fact that he was an absolute passionate gardener who took deep joy in the natural world, and maybe it didn't matter to people writing those books in the 70s, 80s, 90s, but I think for our time it matters, and so my mind changes all the time, and I think we just call it learning, and hopefully having a little bit of flexibility you know, I've learned so much. I, I heard W. Kamau Bell say that he would have talked about race differently had he known then, 10 years ago, what he knows now. I think we've all had an incredible crash course in thinking about race, thinking about trans identities, about gender and getting past the binary. You know, we've had, we've all learned a lot about climate. So if we're learning, we're changing and we're changing our minds. Thank you so
1: much
0: for joining us here on Climate One.
3: Thank you so much.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking about why it's not too late with activist and author Rebecca Solnit. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe wherever you listen.
1: Talking about climate can sometimes be hard or complicated or confusing, but it can also be illuminating and exciting. And it is critical to help address the transitions we need to make across all parts of our society. Help us get more people talking about climate and having meaningful conversations about climate by giving us a rating or a review so others can find the show or simply by sharing our show with your friends.
0: Arianna Brocious is co-host, editor, and producer. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Austin Colon is producer and editor. Our production manager is Megan Basilia. Our development manager is Wensi Shada. Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.